I wasn't on when I was doing the other thing a little while ago. Tomorrow's Memorial Day, a day we set aside, as we mentioned a moment ago, to remember those who have died in the service of our nation. Officially, it's a day in memory of the dead, our honored dead. And in keeping with this day, I want to introduce the message this morning with a consideration of a few, a few of the medals that are awarded to those who have served our country and whom we have chosen to honor. I hope we can get, as I go through the medals, there'll hopefully be a picture behind me, and uh, we're going to follow that through. And the first medal is the Purple Heart, which is awarded to those who have been wounded or killed in battle, in action. The second medal is the Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor is awarded to those who have demonstrated extraordinary bravery and self-sacrifice beyond the call of duty. It is a medal for, as they say, the bravest of the brave. Those who have shown lesser bravery and self-sacrifice may be awarded the Navy Cross, or in the case of the Army, the Distinguished Service Cross. Those who have shown lesser bravery and self-sacrifice than that what is required for the Navy Cross or the Distinguished Service Cross may be awarded the Silver Star. And even lesser bravery and sacrifice, the Bronze Star. So there's sort of a, a tiered hierarchy there in which the Medal of Honor is at the top of the chain for those who have shown extraordinary bravery and service to the country. It's a medal, as I said, for the bravest of the brave. But then there are a couple other medals I'd like to mention. There's the Distinguished Service Medal, and it is awarded to any person who, while serving in any capacity with the United States Army, has distinguished himself or herself by exceptional meritorious service to the government in a duty of great responsibility. The performance must be such as to merit recognition for service, which is clearly exceptional. Exceptional performance in the normal course of duty alone will not justify an award of this decoration. And then there's the Army Commendation Medal, which is awarded to any member of the armed services of the United States who, while serving in any capacity, distinguishes himself or herself by heroism, meritorious achievement, or meritorious service. Now, there are many other medals that are awarded by our armed services. But what is interesting is that the highest medals which are awarded are awarded not for success on the battlefield or for the number of enemy soldiers killed or wounded in action or for the amount of prestige and visibility brought to a particular branch of the service military or for the amount of money raised on Capitol Hill for military projects or preparedness. No, the most valued medals, military medals, are awarded for actions which go to the core of life, beginning with the loss of life itself, and then bravery, self-sacrifice, meritorious service, and performance of duty which is clearly exceptional. Now compare that with the honors we bestow 
upon our sports heroes, our corporate heroes, our sales heroes, our academic heroes, and even our spiritual heroes. You get the point? Even in the Christian community, I came of age as a Christian, as a young man, looking up to and holding in esteem high-profile Christian leaders, leaders who seemed to have it all together when it came to making a huge impact upon our world for Christ. Leaders who wrote books by the hundreds, held must-attend seminars that attracted thousands, packed churches, raised mega-dollars for the cause of Christ, started parachurch ministries on a national scale, an international scale, called millions of people around the world to repent and consider the claims of Christ. These were my Christian heroes. The people I assumed would be at the top of the list to receive the Christian equivalent of the Medal of Honor. But as I searched and studied the Scripture over the years, I came to realize that our Commander-in-Chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, has much different requirements for His most valued and highest honors. And in no portion of Scripture is this more apparent than in His words to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He wrote a letter to each church, the Lord Jesus Christ did. And from those letters we learn a lot. From his letter to the church at Ephesus, we learn that his highest honors are reserved for those who overcome indifference and apathy and who show exceptional love and devotion in their service to him. From his letter to the church at Smyrna, we learn that his highest, highest honors are reserved for those who overcome tribulation, poverty, fear, suffering, and remaining faithful even unto death itself. From his letter to the church at Thyatira, we learn that his highest honors are reserved for those who overcome the, the depths of satanic deception and abominable evil in the church and holding fast to the truth that they do have and continuing in his works until the end. From his letter to the church at Sardis, we learn that his highest honors are reserved for those who overcome deadness in the church, strengthening the things which remain, holding fast to the truth, and working faithfully in the full expectation of his soon return. From his letter to the church at Philadelphia, we learn that his highest honors are reserved for those who overcome marginal strength and meager resources to press on in obedience to His Word, not denying His name, and in keeping His command to persevere unto the end. And from His letter to the church of Laodicea, we learn that His highest honors are reserved for those who overcome lukewarm Christianity that is caught up in the affluent wealth, powerful influence, and high visibility in the world to embrace His wealth 
the wealth of Jesus Christ, His power, His wisdom, leading to true zeal and an insatiable desire to experience close personal fellowship with Him in His eternal kingdom. Now, this is not exactly what I would have expected 30 years ago from my commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be looking for in those for whom He had reserved His highest honors. That is probably because I, like most of us, was driven by the thinking of the world around me. However, our Lord Jesus Christ does not evaluate would-be heroes in His kingdom like the world evaluates its heroes, its celebrities, its high performers. A contrast that could be not more obvious than when we consider the church, the letter that our Lord Jesus Christ wrote to the church that I omitted. Which one was that? The church at Pergamos, the one that we're looking at. A letter in which our Lord reveals and makes clear that His highest honors in this church are reserved for those who overcome in the church blatant toleration of false teaching, evil influences, and the people-conquering efforts of the Nicolaitans to stand and fight with the sword of His Spirit, the Word of God, a losing battle, history will record, a battle that would eventually be lost, even though the war, I guarantee you, will be won. Those who overcome the temptation to go along with the crowd, who take a stand, who make sacrifices, who though they are fighting a losing battle in the world, will not go unrewarded by their commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to follow with me as we read again this wonderful letter to the church at Pergamos and spend a particular attention today looking at the final verse of this section. And we read, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I, Jesus, know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone. And on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. As I mentioned last week, the church at Pergamos was a fervent evangelical church, willing to stand against the horrors of persecution even to the point of death and martyrdom, willing to stand up for the name of Christ. Yet like its counterpart, the city of Pergamos, The church at Pergamos was just too accepting. It was a church that tolerated 
false teachers in its fellowship who, like Balaam in the Old Testament, encouraged compromise and pagan immorality and idolatry. Furthermore, they also tolerated and accepted other people called the Nicolaitans, who not only wanted Christians entangled in immorality and idolatry, the idolatry of paganism, but who also sought to control Christians, capture their hearts and their minds and their lives, and control them for their own ends. Our Lord said He hated them. He hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. However, from His letter to Pergamos, we learn that the Lord's highest honors are reserved for those who overcome these false teachers and their, their evil influence, along with the dominating force of the Nazi-like Nicolaitans by forming a resistance and fighting against them with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It will be a costly fight. People who take a stand in this kind of a church, in this kind of a situation, will suffer deprivation. They will be deprived of much that would bring a measure of joy. They will suffer rejection and they will suffer isolation. All for a battle that will eventually be lost. But our Lord promises them a share in His highest honors. Not because they won. Those are the people we would pat on the back. But because they stood their ground, listen again to his words in verse 17. He's speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking or writing a letter to them. And he says, he, or we could say she, who has an ear, let him or her hear. That is, respond, obey what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit of God is being sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to take this word and minister it to people. And he continues, to him who overcomes. He's saying this to individuals in the church. The church is not going to, to win. This particular church is going to lose in, in the long run, according to history. But for those individuals in the church who overcome, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. In the context of this church, these words of challenge and promise of reward are for those who remain absolutely loyal to the person, the work, and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the person who won't give an inch. Won't give an inch when it comes to the deity of Christ. Who won't give an inch when it comes to His substitutionary death on the cross for our sins who won't give an inch when it comes to His inerrant words that make up the totality of the written Scriptures we call the Bible. This is the person who will insist that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man cometh unto the Father but through Him. This is a person who will defend to the end the right for all people to hear the unfiltered words of our Lord Jesus Christ when He said, Truly I say to you, He that believeth in Me has everlasting life. Period. Right. 
but he will be likely a person who will be deprived, rejected, labeled, and isolated. But the rewards of our Lord will honor him or her with, will be worth more than he or she could ever imagine. What kind of rewards are you talking about, Arch? We pick up the story again in verse 17 where our Lord mentions three rewards for those who refuse to tolerate and accept the false teaching of the false teachers and the Nazi-like forcefulness of the Nicolaitans. First, Jesus says, I will give them some of the hidden manna to eat. Second, he says, I will give him or her a white stone. Third, he says, and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him or her who receives it. First, Jesus says, I will give him or her some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, the book of Revelation is full of symbolism. But I believe that the majority of symbols are clearly explained in Scripture. What about this hidden manna that Jesus will give to those who overcome false teaching and evil influences in the church? What is this hidden manna that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give those who willingly take a stand in the midst of a rushing stream with their feet planted firmly in the Word of God? We find an explanation, I believe, in John chapter 6, verses 30 to 35. And we read these words. Jesus, again, is speaking. And he says, Therefore they said to Jesus, What sign will you perform them that we may see and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now it seems clear that Jesus is speaking about himself when he speaks about the manna which has been hidden, the manna that he would give. But what does, it, what does he mean when he speaks about this manna which has been hidden? What kind of concept are we dealing with when he talks about hidden? What's it referred to? I think it speaks of his physical body which was hidden from sight when he ascended from this earth into the presence of God the Father to be seated at his right hand. We'll notice in Acts chapter 1-9, just at the moment of his ascension into heaven, it says, Now when he had spoken these things to his disciples on this earth, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. However, the day will come when the one who spoke of himself as the bread of life will return to this earth visibly to receive his own unto himself. Notice the continuation of Acts chapter 1, verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The same Jesus says to those who overcome that he will give them the hidden manna to eat. In other words, he's going to offer himself as food to satisfy those who have overcome and who in the process have been deprived or made to feel deprived, singled out, isolated from enjoying fellowship in the body of Christ. Jesus is saying to them, I will be food for you. I will satisfy your inner longing. He's not talking about physical food here. He's saying, I will satisfy your inner longing beyond anything you may have had to give up in standing your ground for me. And they had to give up much in the church. They had to give much outside the church, give up much outside the church as well. In the church at Pergamos, Jesus was specifically saying that he would be their food in contrast to the heathen feast and the pagan celebrations, the good times and the fun and the games that the world had to offer, that they had to forfeit in their struggle to stay true to him. Christ says, I'm going to give you the kind of food that will be truly lasting, satisfying. The kind of food that will not fill an empty stomach, but will fill an empty life. The kind of food that will not bring a sense of happiness and well-being for a short time, like sex and drugs, but will be the kind of food that brings a sense of happiness and well-being for all eternity. Look closely with me at this manna. When Jesus said to the Jews who questioned him back in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. What did he mean by this? When he says this and uses this metaphor, the bread of life, this heavenly manna, what was he talking about? A brief consideration of the manna that came down from heaven from God to his people, the children of Israel, back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, reveals three things about the manna. First of all, the manna satisfied it satisfied their physical hunger, and it also gave them, when they ate it, it gave them a sense of being full, satisfied. Second, it nourished them, for they lived for a total of 40 years on this manna. Thirdly, it was, we're told that it tasted like wafers and honey. Sounds like to me that God was into bakery goods, and I like that thought, that there, possibly there's that hope there when we get to heaven. Nothing is more enjoyable than eating a delicious pastry. Now, I think there is a parallel here with Jesus Christ. First of all, he's going to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Secondly, he's going to nourish our spiritual life. And thirdly, the manna that left a taste in the mouth of the children of Israel that was like wafers and honey, our Lord Jesus Christ is going to leave a taste in our life the life of an overcomer that is truly pleasurable, vibrant, exciting, and joyful. He said that I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. It's difficult for us to, at least for me, to appreciate what our Lord is saying here. But I think the closest parallel experience that I can come to in our practical life is the feeling that we have after we eat a, a great meal with other family and friends. 
If you can, we'll picture Thanksgiving. It's not Thanksgiving, but you know what it's like to have a Thanksgiving meal. When you eat Thanksgiving meal, if you aren't full, something's wrong with you. There's a sense of being full. There's a sense also that our body is ready to live, usually sleep, but to live and experience life to the fullest because it has been nourished once we take a rest. And of course, there's the great taste of the food. But the great taste of the food pales in comparison to the great fellowship, the time of being with other people that we love, friends and family. That's what makes Thanksgiving meals so special and other meals like it throughout the year. The sense that there's love and support and companionship in the challenges of life. And this is what our Lord is promising to give those who refuse to tolerate false teachers and Nazi-like people, conquerors in the church, who refuse to be swept away by their false teaching and their powerful influence and their powerful presence. He's saying, I'm going to give you this manna. And you're going to feel so full and you're going to be so nourished and you're going to have such a a sense of well-being that will last for all eternity. I promise you that. Secondly, he says, I'm going to give you a white stone. What in the world is this all about? Whenever Christians take a stand and refuse to go along with the prevailing mood, who refuse to be swept away by some smooth-talking false teacher who refused to heal before the false but powerful presence of the Nicolaitans in the church. There's going to be fallout in the life of such a Christian. And the fallout usually will amount to being rejected and regarded as an outcast. When you consider that all people, all of us, need and crave acceptance and a sense of approval in life, we're always fishing for it, if we're honest with ourselves. I always love the person who says, well, I don't need any praise. I'm tough. I, I'm ex- I don't need any acceptance. I don't need anybody. I don't depend on anybody's approval. Nonsense. If you're human, you do. More than you realize. More than I realize. The problem is, is that when you take a stand, when you stand up for what you believe is right, what do people do? They disapprove of you. They cast you off. They don't accept you. They reject you. And that disapproval, that rejection can be devastating, especially for a Christian who values his or her church family. We're talking here about what goes on in the church of Pergamos and by extension all churches. In view of that, our Lord promises to give him or her who's going through this rejection because of their stand a white stone. And the word here for stone literally means a small, worn stone or pebble. Now, what is a white or worn stone or pebble? After consulting probably more than 30 commentaries and opinions on this subject, I've discovered that there are about 30 or more different opinions or interpretations of just what the white stone is. And what I've come up with is a synthesis of the majority of them. The white or worn stone or pebble in ancient times was used in a variety of ways. And the ways in which it was used is, first of all, it was used in the, for instance, in the uh, casting of a vote. In other cases, it would be used to indicate an opinion or to render a verdict in a court case. 
In still other instances, it would be used to gain admittance into a, a special event, sort of like the stamp you wear on your hand when you're going to Disneyland. When a person voted using a white pebble or a black pebble, the color of the significance had great significance because if you put the white pebble in, it meant that you approved or voted for something. If you put the black pebble in, it meant you voted against it. The same thing was true when it came to rendering a verdict in a courtroom. If you felt the person was guilty, you put a black pebble in it. If you felt they were innocent, you put a white pebble in it. The same thing was true when it came to expressing an opinion. If the opinion was for something, you put in a white pebble. If it was against something, you put in a black pebble. The Apostle Paul used this, by the way, so I think there's some basis for what I'm saying. The Apostle Paul in Acts 26.10 said, as he recounts his testimony and his former persecution of Christians, I have cast my voice against them. He's given his testimony. He's telling what he was like before he became a Christian. I have cast my voice against these Christians. That's what I did at one time. The word for voice here is the word for stone that we have here, translated stone in uh, Revelation 2, because that's what it really meant. He was casting his stone. He was casting his stone for a vote against these Christians. He was probably putting in a black pebble and saying, I'm against these Christians. That's before he became a Christian. Furthermore, people in ancient days were given a white stone with a name engraved on the white stone. And it signified that they were entitled to enter into a social gathering or event. The same was true of friendship. Once a friendship was really established on the basis of character, a white stone was given to the person with his name often engraved on it so that he could show that to family and friends. It's sort of like saying, I'm a buddy of Arch Rutherford and you're a buddy of Arch Rutherford. We have something in common. Now, as we consider the background about this white stone, the words of Jesus a basic idea emerges, and it's this. The white stone symbolizes acceptance. Acceptance. Whether it's based on a favorite vote, a declaration of innocence, a positive opinion, or a ticket to an event, or a gathering, or an affirmation of friendship, whatever it was based on, it always indicated acceptance. When you give a white stone, it was an indication that you accepted someone. Now, I think... That would have been very relevant to those who were struggling to stand against the current of false teaching and overcome the deception of false teachers at the church of Pergamos. Because they were not going to be accepted if they did that. They were going to be cast aside as old-fashioned or whatever, rejected. Jesus, on the other hand, is saying, don't worry. I accept you, and I will give you one day a white stone. And that stone will say, you are accepted and will be embraced by me. But Jesus takes it even a step further. He says, on that stone, a new name I'm going to write, engrave, which no one knows except him who receives it. An interesting way to put this. Those who stand up and overcome in the church of Pergamos were bound to be labeled. Don't we do that today? We don't like somebody or what they're doing. We throw a label on them. We do it all the time. We're experts at labeling because that's human nature. 
In a church, we might call them a troublemaker. A person's a troublemaker. Or a common word in the world today, if you don't like somebody's religious view, they're fundamentalist. They actually believe something. Or we call them isolationist. Or marginal. Or an intolerant person. Or whatever. I'm sure if I just took the time, we could go around and come up with a bunch of labels that we love to throw today. What Jesus promises to those who stand firm in the midst of a powerful current is a white stone with a new name written on it in which no one knows that name except the one who receives it. Now, a name in the Bible was not taken lightly. It spoke of the kind of man or woman a person was. Parents would take a lot of time to think up a good name for their children, not one that sounds good like we do today. But they would think of one that had significance. And that's why most boys in the Old Testament had the word El somewhere in their name because the word El in Hebrew referred to God. And women also often were given names, chosen names, that betrayed certain, or not betrayed, but uh, conveyed certain graces that were to be characteristic of someone who would be living pleasing to God. Now, our Lord, when he says he is going to engrave a new name on this stone, he is saying, I'm going to give this overcomer a new name, a name that is fresh and distinctive, a name that is superior to the old name that he had, a name that speaks of his loyalty to me in the midst of very powerful, deceptive influence. Our friends and family may have given us an old name or label, I know my family gave me a few. They might have given you a few too, like old crusty or hard-nosed, or in my case, they, they called me uh, Archie. My dad was up at the, this class that I was teaching up at Schaefer this past year, past semester, and he referred to me as Archie the whole time. I mean to tell you, they got, the, the, the students never got over that. I mean, that's, that was my name from then on. I couldn't believe it. He's the only one, and my sister are the only two people in the world that call me that. Although there's one person in this church that's got away with it, I'm going to have to talk to him. Whatever they call you, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name, and I'm going to write it on a white stone, a pebble. And it's going to be an indication that you are accepted and favored by me, and it's also going to be something that's going to indicate to you that you are close to my heart that you are close to my heart. And this is not unusual in Scripture. God changed Abram's name to Abraham. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. He, Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. And Paul became, or Saul became Paul. Names were changed according to people's character that took place in their life when they came to Christ. We do the same thing to a degree today. I've got some names that, in addition to Archie, that aren't all that great. My family often calls me the bull because I was the bull in the china shop growing up. My wife sometimes calls me the wall. That's one of her favorite names for me because I don't listen when she talks. <laughs> Friends have called me red for years, and then as I got a little bit on the bigger side, they called me big red. But the point is, we give these names, and they indicate a relationship, negative or positive, usually positive. 
And it's a relationship that's special. The relationship between a husband and wife, between members of a family, between friends. Jesus also indicated that the new name he would give us and write and engrave on this stone would be a special name between him and us. We all have names we don't share normally with anyone else. Names that we have between ourselves. This is particularly true in the home, in marriage. In our marriage, we have a name we call each other Deary. People say, well, they'll hear that occasionally. Say, Where in the world did that come from? Well, that, that's none of your business. You know, that's what we call each other. I remember one guy came in one night, and he had heard me say this to my wife. He called her Deary and said, would you mind getting something? And he came in and he said, Deary, what's for dinner? And she said, nothing for you. Because it's a name of affection that only I can call her or that she can call me. Nobody else does that. I'm sure most of you have those kind of names, intimate names that you share in the intimacy of your life with somebody special. And that's what our Lord is saying. He's going to give us a new name. I'm going, it's going to be a, a name between us, between myself and my Lord. No one else is going to know it but you and your Lord. And it will be a name that is appropriate for you. It will be descriptive of your character, of your stand, of what you gave him, of your loyalty. Well chosen, full of meaning and appreciation and love. A name that is going to draw us together. It will be our Lord's way of saying, I appreciate you. I love you. You stood up for me. You were loyal to me. To my person, to my work, to my words. And I deeply appreciate that. And here's a name that we'll always have together so that every time you come into my presence, you'll know. And I'll know. There's something special between us. Friends, I can't think of anything more exciting as I think about eternity. We're just so blessed. So blessed. Heaven, hidden manna. A sense of, of satisfaction that is out of this world. A stone, a white stone that says we're accepted and a name that just is something special between me and my Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't a game, friends. This is for keeps. And he's going to award it. Not to those who've Accomplish something big in the estimation of man. He's going to award to those who've accomplished something big in his estimation. And in the church of Pergamos, that big accomplishment will be standing for the truth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, help us as we consider your word and all that it means to us. May it drive home to us that there's so much at stake, that this life is so short, but eternity is going to be an opportunity forever and ever to experience a, a relationship with you that has the potential to be so deep and so wonderful. Help us, Lord, to stand our ground, to be those people who strive for the highest honors that are not predicated on the kind of measures that we use in the world, 
that are predicated on core values that strike at the very character of a man or woman of God. Help us, Lord, to take this all to heart. And we thank you, Lord, that you've saved us. You've given us the gift of eternal life that you'll never take away, even if we fall flat on our face and stumble miserably as Christians. We can't be lost, Lord, because you will be faithful to save us. Thank you, Father, for that confidence in Jesus' precious name. Amen.